gang. Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and not in the booth, but in my fucking office, we've got Pete McKenzie and Gabby Magnuson. The Al-Qaeda booth is too good for us, apparently. Yeah, a long story. It's one of those days. So North Korea, my pet shit, is in the news in not a good way. So uh, I just wanted to like bring some stuff up uh, before we get into our segments. Uh, Jared Kushner, the princeling, the flaming asshole <laughs> that uh, wishes he was Trump. He was quoted in a... So there's this book by this guy whose name I will not even mention, who um, he's like a sycophant to Trump. He wrote a Trump sycophanty book that just came out, and he used all this insider access of interviews with people in the White House, etc. And in the book, he quotes uh, Jared Kushner as telling him that... This is on North Korea. You can see from these letters that Kim wants to be Kim Jong Un wants to be friends with Trump, but his father told him never to give up the weapons. That's his only security. Trump is like a new father figure, so it is not an easy transition. End quote. So this this is Jared Kushner trying to do my job, right? What if I tried to do your job of being like the son of a rich person and self-aggrandizing in the Middle East and everything? Um, what if I tried to be corrupt? So, <laughs> so uh, Kushner, so this is crazy, right? This is like reducing foreign policy to armchair psychology. Yeah, it's it's weird, like wannabe Freud kind of shit. It just doesn't make any sense. Oh, your explanation for everything is your father. Yeah, and that would only make sense to someone who's who actually does have problems with their father, right? Like that's like homoerotic Freudianism, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so this is Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's father, did did tell his son not to give up the nukes because mm. it's his only security. Uh, that's not profound. It's not quote-worthy. Mm. It's Everybody knows this. Um, also, it's just what's logical, uh, regardless of whether Kim Jong-un Kim Jong said it. It's sage advice of don't give up the nukes that we spent 50 years chasing. Um, and so... Uh, we almost went to war to get these. This is Jared Kushner being the useful idiot, taking Kim Jong-un's words at face value the same way Trump did, being utterly manipulated. And um, I just if, if you're that if you're going to be this stupid, I don't know what the point of being like a functionary for Jared Kushner and Trump is. So like I know a bunch of Korea hands that work in the administration because they're civil servants. They're very smart people. Some of them are friends. And are they holding the line on something? Like, it doesn't seem like it, right? Kushner and Trump clearly have some kind of pathology that doesn't allow them to take sound advice. I know for a fact no Korea hands would have accepted this interpretation of Kim Jong-un's letters. That's insanity. Kim Jong-un is trying to manipulate Trump. That's why he's a useful idiot. Um, he's trying to ingratiate himself with Trump. And apparently it's working on Kushner, too. Um, and so this is just all for shame. It's a crazy and weird outcome. But what an incredibly cost-effective form of diplomacy by the Kims. Like, that's the cost of a big pen and some notepaper. And you've it won yourself nothing. nukes. Like, it's insane. Yeah. That's that's the most tr frustrating part is how easy it is for Kim Jong. We shouldn't be making his job this easy. Mm. Um and then the other North Korea thing was, let me get out my printed tweet here. Um, Dave Stilwell is the Assistant Secretary of State for EAP East Asia and the Pacific. And so he's 
he's the head honcho guy for Asia shit, Asia policy. And he, and I shouldn't sit note. I know him. Uh, I like him. He, uh, he was a Chinese linguist in the air force, but he started his career like me as a Korean linguist. Like there, we have a lot of like connections and stuff. So, um, this is not shitting on him, but shitting on his words, I guess. I don't <laughs> so he was asked by a Japanese like media person about North Korea's end of year deadline. And so if, for people who don't know, North Korean diplomats have said that the U.S. has until the end of the year to come correct. And we don't know exactly what that means, but it's it's very obviously a threat there. They said they, Kim Jong-un is going to have to pursue a quote unquote new way which is to say like an old way of, of being super hardline, which is to say like kidnapping people and killing people and doing crazy shit, popping off nukes. That, that new way is going to come at the end of the year if they don't see significant movement or a breakthrough in talks. So uh, everybody who watches Korea, which just to be clear, is in Asia. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> everybody who watches Korea knows about this other than like the the farcical nature of the trump kim summit diplomacy this is the main thing that's happening on on north korea um and so the japanese reporter asked uh dave stillwell about this and stillwell says quote i'm gonna have to claim ignorance on that one <laughs> i don't remember a time limit being set is this the north koreans <laughs> So I guess Pete and I hadn't really seen this when you had sent it through, and you should have just seen our faces right now. Obviously, in the podcast, we just looked at each other and we're like, "Um, wait, what?" <laughs> it's it's this is so crazy. It's so hard not to roast this because it's so irresponsible. It's just the sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Like. Yeah, and so then the um, deputy assistant secretary says, steps in and says, "The North Koreans have said the end of the year is their deadline," and then Stillwell Ooh. says. For a follow-on on Stockholm? For what? And then Mark Knapper says, the Deputy Assistant Secretary, for j just some kind of breakthrough with us. And then Stillwell says, as you can tell, I'm not completely up to speed on that particular aspect. So pause. He's not completely up to speed on the fucking uh -oh. thing that almost caused nuclear war in 2017 in his portfolio. What else is there to be up to speed on? Like, And then he says, but I would say that the North Koreans do one thing a lot, and that's bluff, right? Sea of fire. Think of all the things they've said and of the things they're going to do, which they never followed through on. Um, it's in their interest to resolve this issue. Having nuclear weapons makes them less secure, not more secure. And then it went just it went down that, that rabbit hole of, like, insanity. Mm. So it's amateur hour not to know that North Korea has a deadline. Everybody, you know, just normal people know this. He's wrong about nukes making north korea less secure the regime is insured now that's why they did this that's why they went to such ends to get it they wouldn't have gone to such great lengths to get nukes if it made them less secure mm. so his his talking points are at best wishful thinking or perhaps from another era um and even if he's right so like my first book about North Korea was about how it was a uh, reputation in, in U.S. North Korea relations. And so it was this idea that like one of the reasons why we've had recurring crises with North Korea is because we are constantly thinking U.S. policy officials constantly thinking that North Korea is 
bluffing. And that leads us to be caught off guard when they do stuff. And the, the surprise of getting caught off guard is directly what triggers the crisis each time there's a crisis. And so it's, there are like underlying causes and stuff too, but it's, it, you, you would not have six crises the last 60 years where you could have gone to war if not for the fact that you kept discounting what North Korea says and you were overly complacent. And he's doing that again here. And so even if you're right that North Korea is bluffing, what's the strategy? What is the end game, right? Is it still just to wait out the clock? Because North Korea is amassing just literally an undeniable capability and we can't do anything about it currently. And, and to, to clarify, you don't have to take every bluff at face value and expect that they're going to deliver on every single threat that they make, but you have to be prepared for it if it does happen. You have to make sure that, you know, if worse comes to worst, you do have a response as opposed to just kind of dismissing it out of hand as a bluff and then treating it as if nothing else has to be done about it. That's right. I mean, that's the, that's, that's sort of my book. I mean, the, they, they have a history of bluffing. So that's, it's understandable why that U.S. would judge North Korea in this way. Mm. But you, they also have a history of occasional follow through. Yeah. So like, how about a little bit of nuance in how you yeah. try to parse out the rhetoric, try to do your best. What policy measures could you take so that you're not surprised or to forestall the eventuality that would cause, like that would, that would make you surprised. Yeah. And there's none of that. There's no, it's, it's, this is just standard boilerplate shit. Like this could have been the Bush administration as far as I'm concerned. So that's all very concerning because it means that we're, um, we're on track for another crisis. There has been no learning from the patterns of history as far as I can tell. Out of curiosity, for someone like in his position, is there some sort of like information gap or something? Like why wouldn't he know about this? I, I mean, he's a busy guy. Yeah. And I, I actually, I, I'm like almost certain he's read my first book. I, I can't prove it. I'm almost positive. And what I've found is like a lot of U.S. officials have, have read my first book and not my second book. Uh, and the first one, they they take like the wrong lessons from it or the lessons that I don't intend. Right. Which is like people who watch Fight Club and think it's about nihilism as opposed to going all the way down and coming back out. And like, what is what is the wrong lesson from your book? Uh, that... North Korea just bluffs right. and that we have to retaliate in order or like hit them or attack them, show that we're tough. They believe that we're not tough. And so we have to prove it by hitting them. So the impeachment storyline continues. Yeah, it keeps getting crazier. We um, Bolton won't voluntarily testify. Um, he won't be subpoenaed either, according to Democrats. Instead, his refusal will be treated as evidence of obstruction. Vice President Pence's national security aide, Jennifer Williams, is currently testifying. Uh, so we'll find out what's going on there soon, I'm sure, once somebody leaks it. Um, but more broadly, fact-finding is about to finish and transcript, transcripts of the testimony will be released with um, appropriate redactions. So we're, we're basically on the verge of the end of the first stage of the impeachment inquiry. And so next comes more open discussion where you get these kind of set piece trials or set piece hearings uh, more in the public eye than they have been up until now where you you're kind of getting more of the background information from which dems can or democrats can um extract their kind of their lines of inquiry and uh not to be over dramatic about this but kurt volker who was the ambassador and uh sondland who is the trump's eu ambassador through the testimonial process 
they have released a transcript of what they were communicating about as intermediaries between Giuliani and the Ukrainians, and Kurt Volker and Sondland directly communicated the following language from Giuliani to give to the Ukrainian president, which is, first of all, quote, can we do this one on WhatsApp? Okay, fine. Can you initiate? And then they didn't go onto WhatsApp. And then, and then they kept going. Um, and it's uh, Kurt Volker said that the Ukrainian president should say this. Special, assist, special attention should be paid to the problem of interference in the political processes of the United States, especially with the alleged involvement of some Ukrainian politicians. I want to declare that this is unacceptable. We intend to initiate and complete a transparent and unbiased investigation of all available facts and episodes, including those involving Burisma, which is the Hunter Biden uh, energy firm, and the 2016 U.S. elections, which in turn will prevent the recurrence of this problem in the future. That is Volker. That's what Volker is saying to the Ukrainians that they want the Ukrainians to say. Mm. So this is it's not even that they wanted to it's it's U.S. officials writing, writing the, talking the talking points. points. But two, it's they're communicating that they want the talking points to already prejudge the outcome mm. and pre target the energy firm that Biden was on, and the 2016 elections. And it's worth mentioning at this point that Sondland has also added to his testimony after he realized that there was a chance of... I believe they call that changing your testimony. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe <laughs> so. Um, after, I suppose, after he realized that there was a chance, a non-negligible uh, chance of imprisonment uh, for lying or misleading Congress. Um, Oops. He added to his testimony, changed his testimony, that there was an explicit quid pro quo. And this is the guy who was in the room negotiating the deal. He's the American ambassador to the EU who was in charge of the, nominally in charge of the process, answering to Rudy Giuliani. If anybody knew, he knew. And there this, again, we have to keep saying it because otherwise people forget, even if there was no quid pro quo, yeah. it's still a high crime. But of course there was a quid pro of quo. Of course there was. Yeah. Oh, man. It is, it is mental. It just blows my mind on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move into prediction market. Basically, we get banned to predict shit. We laugh at it. We'll track it. We'll tell you how it goes. So we're going to go into some new area here, area that we haven't necessarily covered before. Will the RCEP free trade deal be finalized and come into force in 2020? This is the RCEP, I believe it's like Regional Comprehensive Economic Part. This yep. is the regional trade deal that is um, centered on China in the like popular narrative. It's like China's answer to the TPP. It's, yeah, it's the contra TPP or the counterpoise to TPP. Um, and as as I understood it, it was it was just a very low barrier. It's it's laden with symbolism. But it's not laden with like a lot of constricting substance. Like one of the reasons why there was a TPP in the first place was because of a need to not just secure uh, market access and lower tariff barriers, but labor standards and environmental standards, or at least a modicum of them, um, which is just absent wholly from uh, RCEP, which makes it easier in theory to join. Um, but it is symbolically centered on china mm. and it would secure chinese access to the markets of the countries that sign on to it which is like the asean countries new zealand australia yeah uh, 15 countries yeah. 
And there's a there's a subset of those countries that are also part of TPP, mm. um, like New Zealand and yeah. Australia. And so the it RCEP and TPP have been teed up as conflicting things, but like in practice, actually signing on to both is a means of hedging, and it, that's totally feasible to do. I'm going to predict. Oh yeah, I forgot to give the prediction. So the, I'm going to Cru- crucial part of this process. <laughs> giving you the Wikipedia on RCEP first. Um, so I'm going to predict that RCEP will not enter into force by the end of the year, um, in part because India. Mm. It, it's more than having reservations. They're basically backing out. Yeah. Japan, who's all in on the U.S., they're sucking off Trump every day, <laughs> strategically speaking. <laughs> of course, of course. Not literally, right? How else could you possibly interpret it? <laughs> yeah. And, but like you couldn't, nobody, they're the most in yeah. on, I mean, they're more in with America than Australia is. Yeah. And they are part of RCEP. And not only are they part of RCEP, the Japanese government is like actively trying to get India back in yeah. because they're like, hey, well, wait a minute. Now we're the only anti-China country who's part of RCEP. This is fucked. And so, so now Japan is like working hard to get India in. And Japan, Japan's willingness to be part of RCEP goes down mm. if, it's, if, they're, if India is not also in it. And so Japan is looking at a 2020 ratification uh in hopes that in the meantime they can convince india to come back in right with all this floating i've I've heard that like china really wants to conclude it asap but with with india and japan being such like uh ambiguities yeah i'm going to say not by 2020 not by january 2020 interesting second and related to india will india lift the state of emergency in kashmir before the end of 2019 gonna say no see this time i started out with the prediction there we go there we go <laughs> and then, into the then then the rationale in the <laughs> background <laughs> so i'm i i'm not a uh india file i don't even know what you would call it yeah. india watcher but like <laughs> the cashmere file um i wear lots of sweaters yeah yeah so i i'm not a super expert on this like so many things but what i do know is that India has locked down Kashmir, yeah. and the state of emergency has been the you know the rationale, but and they've been incredibly opaque yeah. about what's happening, why they're doing it, and then in that context, they bring this far right group of EU parliamentarians yeah. uh, to do like a dog and pony show and show off the Potemkin village that has become Kashmir, and. All of this seems to be like the way I'm interpreting that is they're trying to use these parliamentarians who have a far right bent to like uh, legitimize or normalize Indian control of Kashmir and this just black curtain of transparent anti-transparency or whatever. Yeah. And to me, that suggests that they're not going to change anything anytime soon. That's how I'm reading this. And that's why I'm saying uh, I don't think they're going to change anything by the end of the year right um and interestingly that trip by european meps kind of fell apart with uh various uh meps being refused access to kashmir because of comments that they made or getting to kashmir and making comments that the indian government were not favorable to so yeah it backfired yeah and it was the whole thing was organized by a lobbying group that was masquerading as an ngo it's just like it's 
It's weird. We're all preoccupied with like the impeachment storyline. Mm. There are lots of other ridiculous storylines happening. Mm. Like there's a bunch of cloak and dagger stuff with North Korea that we don't have time to get to. There's this weird far right transnational alliance to try oh, and man. like whitewash the the taking of Kashmir. I mean, it's <laughs> it is insane. There's too much happening. There's too much happening. The as always, the motto of this show is that the world is on fire. Yeah. Um, and third, will Europe, China, and Russia remain party to the JCPOA? So the the Iran nuclear JC, deal. JCPOA, yeah. Uh, JCPOA through twenty twenty. I believe they will remain party to the JCPOA through the end of the year, um, and it may go even further than that. Like you may start seeing them find ways to circumvent. Uh, either sporadically or systematically, the the sort of maximum pressure sanctions regime that the U.S. is pursuing. Um, there's a bunch of research on weaponized. So the answer is, wait, what was the question? <laughs> will will, um, will China, Russia, and Europe remain party to the JCPOA? JCPOA. Yes, yes. They will not abrogate it. They will not walk away. Um, and then going even further, I would say that like you're we're going to start seeing countries who are like minded and on a different page than the Trump administration find ways to circumvent what is basically like a U.S. dominated financial mm -hmm. system that allows the U.S. to sanction the shit out of everybody. And so that what I was trying to say is like there's all this research on weaponized interdependence that is like very cutting edge um, and it's it's highlighting the fact that like countries are starting to see geopolitical disadvantages to just being purely part of a, a U.S. centric like uh, swift system, U.S. dollar denomination back, you know, of reserve currency yeah. and like all this stuff. Um, and so they're finding ways to set up parallel or alternative structures. Um, and Iran is actually an example of where the EU has started talking about that already. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that the U.S. is in an like, untenable position on Iran. And unless you're going to start a war, you're going to start seeing, and even if you start a war, you're going to start seeing other countries um, who were part of JCPOA kind of peel off, do their own thing. This is a, a slight tangent, but there's an amazing article that we'll put in show notes by, um, I can't remember the author's name, but it's on BuzzFeed Highline, which is all about how because of the centrality of the American financial system, it's practically impossible for other countries in a hypothetical world to sanction the United States back. And so it's envisioning how different countries could circumvent that system or create a new financial system in which not only not being party to American sanctions, but even you know hypothetically sanctioning America or san or, or engaging in in dis dissonant forms of kind of financial activity are possible. So I'd really encourage people to read that. I'll put it in show notes. Nice. So for the last one there, um, will America withdraw from the Paris Agreement in 2020? Um, I'm going to say yes, they will, but also that it it won't matter too much. There's nothing that stops the U.S. from rejoining the Paris Accords when a new president takes office. And the I guess the way it's set up now Paris Accords will, the U.S. involvement will officially terminate in the interregnum between when we've found out the election outcome and when the new president comes into office. And so what happens during that window, unless people are dying, doesn't matter. 
Uh, it's, you know, like anything that Trump sets in motion or the U.S. sets in motion prior to the new president taking office can just be undone. So uh, I'll say that uh, it doesn't matter, but um, yes, they will. Interesting. Very, very cool. Let's jump into Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. Uh, I have two quick ones. Usually I do the fucking really long ones. The first one is from Aaron Stein, who's at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. I think he's also the co-host of a really bitchin' podcast called Arms Control Wonk with a buddy of mine who endorsed my book, by the way, no big deal, Jeffrey Lewis, who's who is the Arms Control Wonk. Um, and Aaron Stein is like a Turkey Middle East uh, guy and he's a nuke guy. And he says in the tweet, quote, Trump is very easy to read. He said he wanted the oil in 2015, but let's step back. American policy in Syria has devolved into guarding oil fields without clear rules of engagement or any true guidance and a task force grafted onto the uh, Syrian defense forces, the Kurds, for never ending counterterrorism raids. The U.S. is doing this while ostensibly trying to implement the national defense strategy, which calls for being smarter about how to deploy finite assets to better counter Russia and China. It's truly an embarrassing state of affairs. No one should be proud of how this has turned out. By the way, that last line is like, you could apply that to everything these days. That is the new motto of the podcast. I take it back. (laughs) No one should be proud of how this has turned out. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, So there's a couple of things here. This is is notable for being like uniquely snark free. I gravitate toward the snark. Um, and two, he's, he's, he's highlighting something that we talked about in the last time we got together about Daniel Larison's piece about uh, mercantilism and imperialism. Trump has this Biff Tannen school of imperialism. Yeah. That's a Back to the Future reference for you Gen Zers who don't. <laughs> <laughs> it, took, it, took me, it took me like a second. I was like, oh, yeah. yeah no, Biff Tannen. I mean, it's, it's this crude 1950s yeah. asshole bully style of imperialism. Yeah. Um, and what, what, what Aaron Stein is pointing out is like, we knew about this in 2015. Trump has been saying, take the oil since 2015. It's probably one of his like, I think it's since before that as well, actually. It's probably one of his oh, oldest... Oh, yeah, like probably in the 80s. Yeah, like, there's always a tweet for it, right? But this is one of his oldest uh, foreign policy positions just because it's so in line with that kind of wheeling, real estate, property deal-making kind of character, right? It just seems so... It's so intuitive for that character that he played. Yes, and so he's... The problem with this... The reason why it's scary is because he's doing what he said. Yeah. And he has said almost exclusively frightening things. And so the fact that he's he's implementing it means, A, we should not be surprised. B, what about all the other fucked up stuff that he has said when he pursues that too? Are we going to be like, oh, we had no idea. So uh, Ernstein is like highlighting something important here. Yeah. Every, every, single, imperialism. every single opinion piece I ever read about Trump now is like, what if it was a sophisticated actor? What if Trump was, you know, this incredible, incredibly smart guy who could actually follow through on his policy promises? Well, it doesn't matter that he's not incredibly smart. Now he is following through on his policy promises, and that's fucking terrifying. That's right. And then, so the other point that Aaron is making here is that, like, it is impossible, 
he doesn't put too fine of a point on it, but I, I will, which is that it's impossible to prioritize existential national security issues like dealing with great powers who have nukes mm. like China and Russia, Russia less than China. But like you can't deal with that like hardcore traditional geopolitical stuff, which, by the way, you, you say is the most important thing. You can't even be taken seriously when you're allocating all your resources and all your time to these like shit show quagmires, anti-strategy, guard the fucking oil, like we can't get energy from the sun. <laughs> you know, oh like, my God. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. he, he truly inhabits the 19th century caveman fucking. Yeah. Trump would have been a great king of england in like the 1600s when they could do anything and they'd still just get fuck away with it he would have been a great henry the seventh is what i'm saying henry like just the, the one before the one who fucked everything up completely yeah he's a great glide path to oblivion guy yeah. um yeah so even by trump's own standards of like or the trump administration's own standards about like the importance of asia and china and whatever you're still as quagmired in the middle east as ever except with no guidance mm. or sense of end game at all. Mm. I mean, like the theme that's emerging between this and North Korea is like, there's no end game to any of this stuff. Mm. There's no fucking exit. You know, this is how you breed a generation of nihilists. Like, oh yeah, we're there. And then I had one more uh, super quick hit tweet from Ryan Evans, who's mm. one of my uh, very good friends, founder and CEO of One of the Rocks, a distributor of my first podcast. And he says, quote, after decades of relentless and intellectually lazy trash talking about millennials, it strains credulity that people so, so troubled by OK Boomer are genuinely concerned about intergenerational tensions. Fucking mic drop. Oh, it's just so deeply. So th this is something that is um, in New Zealand. We've been struggling with this because I, the only uh, Gen Z member of parliament, a, a 24 year old. Uh, said okay boomer to a 49 year old member of parliament uh, when they questioned her age while she was speaking on a climate change bill um and so and then the entire so you have the country, audacity to question somebody's fucking age how? and then you get offended by okay boomer yeah it is ridiculous so the whole country exploded in this kind of like paroxysm of uh generational angst and we like university campuses were just standing there like you were questioning her age you were questioning her experience you were the one who provoked this and now you're upset that we're doing the exact same thing and that just stands in for all of these interactions right it's the irony of the boomers is that they they are the biggest victims and snowflakes in the world and yet they're the ones who have raped and pillaged the planet and our ability to accumulate wealth well okay boomer is a thing it's now a thing. right it's it's a, a, yeah yeah i mean i think it might have died now but it's um I think it was on like the uh, top of the opinion pages for the New York Times, and I think that's when a meme dies is when it gets to there. It's when but, it like, jumps the shark, yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. But hundred percent, yeah, you, you've you've stolen everything from us. Let us have the meme, please. Yeah, they they will be the villains of intergenerational history, mm. and they seem uncomfortably comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. So Van has got his uh, two short ones. I've decided to compensate by having a crazy long thread uh, by American philosopher-in-chief Ezra Klein, uh, editor-in-chief of uh, Vox Media. Um, and You remind me of a young Ezra Klein. I don't... I think that's a good thing. I'll take that. Well, I, I, so I'll stand by what I just said. 
But now that I think of it, actually, there are many ways in which I don't like Ezra Klein. <laughs> so, <laughs> I do. I mean, I do like him, but there and are things the about him I don't of like. The podcast. <laughs> Walking out the door. Yeah. <laughs> so Ezra Klein. It, this is basically just a, a, a great summary of where American politics is at. Um, he says Donald Trump is brazen and crude. His abuses are blatant. His henchmen are largely clowns. His underlings are turning on him. His the easiest possible test case for whether our system can hold a president accountable. And we are failing because Republicans are failing. Lindsey Graham's comments today should make you think one thing. It can happen here, and arguably it is happening here, right now. Ambition was supposed to check ambition, but now ambition protects ambition. Parties cooperate across branches. Americans have long believed we designed a form of government that protects us from the authoritarians and corruption that destroys so many other systems. What we're seeing now is that we haven't. Or if we did, we've lost it, and it goes on for a while. But I think that's the uh, I think that's the depressingly key message. accurate, yeah, yeah. Which is that you know y- your myths and your legends about constitutional uniqueness can't protect you when those when the reality of those constitutional protections breaks down, and you have to either adapt to a new reality and introduce a new way of thinking it, or recover the constitutional norms that you once had. Well, you just lose it, and there's there's no getting it back once you've lost it. So this is the in, in this gets to like political science research designs too. If you want to uh, double learn something here, um, the danger or the risk of exploring a most likely case, which is to say an easy case mm. for a theory or a test or a belief system, is that if you don't pass the most likely test, the easy test, you have really undermined the yeah. case. Maybe nothing is falsifiable in the social world, maybe. But that makes it really hard to continue believing in that thing. Mm. And Trump really is the easiest of cases because he's so blatantly corrupt, so blatantly about himself. He so openly commits crimes. It's part of his appeal, right? He boasts about that at campaign rallies because it's part of his pitch to voters. Yeah. Is super, and so this is, uh, you know, depressingly accurate, and it's why I'm very worried in the long term because it's it would not be hard to just be a little bit smarter than Trump, mm. but then follow his playbook. Mm. And I keep hearkening back to, I keep thinking of Ted Cruz specifically, but hopefully that doesn't materialize in oh, the universe. <laughs> but like, if imagine like Ted Cruz being like. Okay, so this is what I have to do. Yeah. I just have to talk out of both sides of my mouth. I have to be vulgar. I have to never apologize. I have to get on TV all the time. I have to create new storylines constantly for people to follow. Um, I have to lie so much that people can't cover the lie because it's not news. And, and then you do your corrupt, felonious acts behind the closed doors, but with people who are competent. Yeah. People who are, you know, loyal and... Um, who won't admit to crimes on camera at the White House press briefing. Yeah. Or like butt dial confessions. <laughs> Giuliani. Oh my God. Why do you think it has gotten to this point? Like, what would you say at least like the top one? Is it because it's like the presidential powers, which should have never gotten like the way it has this far? Like, I mean, so one, Ezra Klein is basically right. Like ambition was supposed to check ambition. The checks and balances system. Yeah. Like... The Congress is supposed to be adversarial with the presidency, and right now it's not, and the Congress is covering for the presidency. And if it was adversarial with the presidency, Trump would already be in jail. Mm. 
Um, but then also Trump has been permitted to pursue so much uh, independent action, particularly in foreign policy, because of the accumulation of power in the executive branch. Um, so there does need to be like a right sizing of executive power just in general. Yeah. And like Obama, it was the same thing with Obama, frankly, like every president comes in there and they try to take advantage of the powers they've been given. They try to maximize that. And we like, I don't know, let it happen, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, like the founding father's vision was built on a bet that political parties wouldn't happen. And then as they did everywhere in the world, political parties happened. And that's yep. what's fucked up the system because the system relies on there not being like synchronicity or cooperation across branches in the way that there has been. So I don't yeah. know how you fix that, but it's pretty shit. Yeah. <laughs> so shout out to Ezra Klein, shout out to Ryan Evans, shout out to Aaron Stein. We love you guys. Let's move on to armchair analysis. So the premise of this uh, segment is that we dive into an article that we thought was interesting, was crap, was good, was funny, uh, and we tell you all about it and converse your reckons. Okay, so our piece for armchair analysis this week is a piece from China File, and the title is How Should Universities Respond to China's Growing Presence on Their Campuses? Um, and the the way this piece is structured is that there's lots of different responses from very smart academics and commentators on China, and so it's quite difficult to summarize it. But I think the key bits to take away is is there's a great quote in the piece, which is, in Australia and New Zealand, uh, as around the world, pro-Beijing students have occasionally shoved, doxxed, and threatened peaceful protesters. In some cases, these activities seem to have been directed by Chinese embassies and consulates, while others appear to have been spontaneous actions undertaken by students from mainland China. And that sets up the piece. Uh, and then there's a, a few perspectives, the the most important of which is that, one, many Chinese students are, are de- denied individual agency by miseducation in China or manipulation once they're in country or fear about consequences for relatives back home. And so you can't demonize them for that. But there have to be clear penalties for Chinese students and diplomats who overstep the bounds. And in order to discourage uh, anti-democratic action in future, there have to be clear penalties for anti-democratic action now. And then it's also worth recognizing that the act of peaceful protest is, of course, in itself democratic. And so insofar as you know, students are engaging in that, they're, they're getting that first taste of, of freedom and democracy. So you have to you have to find ways of challenging long-held perspectives, allowing them to experience democratic values while not letting the situation get out of hand. I, I, I will put the article, as always, we'll put the link to the article in show notes because it's really good and there's some yeah. amazing different perspectives that everyone should read. Yeah, I mean, and one of the one of the virtues of the piece is that there isn't like a single bullet pointed argument. Mm. It's like five or six or seven perspectives, mm. different angles, different sensibilities addressing the same problem. Yeah. Uh, and you see, you see a you see nuance from perspective to perspective, but there is this, this thread that basically I, I would, I would summarize it as like, there is a tension that this issue of like Chinese university students surfaces between uh, political and economic liberalism. Yeah. Uh, you could almost picture like some kind of iron, tri- not iron triangle, but like a try. Like I forget, there's a name for the concept of like a triangle where you can only ever have two of the three oh. things at a time. You yeah. know, like a yeah, trilemma, yeah. and you have democratic content of speech, 
you have the practice of free speech, and you have Chinese money. And Chinese money is obviously the economic liberalism part. Yeah. And then you have the uh, actual espousal of, of democratic rhetoric, or you have free speech that may be, you know, authoritarian or tyrannical, but it's free speech or hateful or whatever. And so you can only ever like satisfy t two of these three things at once. Um, and that's, so that's, that's a conflict in itself that you have to sort of wade through. It make, makes it hard to have like easy answers. But then also there's another level of like the pro mainland China students taking actions that do try to monitor and censor other students who are trying to experience democracy in a sense, or yeah. like speak their values, speak their truth. And to me, like universities generally suck here, Australia, the U S the UK, we suck at playing politics, mm. being cognizant of like our role in geopolitics. We're caught flat footed and we don't, and I, because of that, not only have we had no good answers to date and we've allowed this conflict to ensue, I suspect it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that, that, that means what I'm saying is like, I think this is going to go down a more openly conflictual and violent path mm -hmm. before there's an actual sufficient reaction. And it doesn't have to be that way because like what some of the, uh, the contributors to this like roundtable thing that the China file, they they point out like, look, Human Rights Watch has a code of conduct yeah. that addresses precisely this, like student freedoms, especially foreign student freedoms. How do you protect free speech? How do you ensure that everybody feels like safe? And uh, this exists already. You just have to implement it and apply it, like develop university policies and enforce them, so that Chinese students regardless of whether they're pro Hong Kong or pro Xi Jinping dystopia that uh, my, my thumb is on the scale a little bit, but at least it's on the scale in favor of justice. Damn it. <laughs> I feel like I just dropped into a superhero film. That was intense. <laughs> but I mean like even, okay, even if you're like a Xi Jinping puppet, yeah, that's your right too. Mm. But there are common sense things that we should be doing in order to maintain democratic uh, solidarity, democratic integrity, which is to protect the dissident student speech for one, but then also stuff like don't allow student groups to take Chinese government money, yeah, right? Or Chinese government direction. Like you've got yes. diplomats who are directing protests, which is fucking terrifying. That's fucking, that's t that that's is imperial terrifying. shit. That's yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's not even like, this isn't even probably happening this is like in canada they have screenshots of whatsapp messages between the local ambassador and chinese student leaders like it is it is happening and it's something happening. has to be done and like what's weird is that sunlight is not proving to be the disinfectant mm. that like people are not sufficiently animated the people who are fucking animated about this there's an occasional like somebody who's truly democratic like you, who would be like animated by this, even though you're not like rabidly anti-China. Mm. For the most part, the people who are incensed about this are just the China hawks, mm. which see it as an issue of convenience or like confirmation bias. I told you they're bad, right? Yeah. And they are bad, right? Confirmation bias, guilty. <laughs> but like the, like the Larry, Larry Diamond was one of the contributors. He's a dude at Stanford. He, for whatever you think of Larry Diamond, he has a series of very specific actions that I found very agreeable. 
right. that would help manage the situation better. Um, and so their solutions are in sight. The problems are now evident because like media will surface stories like the WhatsApp content in yeah. Canada. I, the one thing I would say is like, if you as a country or as a university cannot handle responsibly pressure from Chinese consulates and Chinese embassies, you should not be admitting Chinese university students because that is part and parcel. That's what, that's what it comes yeah. with. So you better get competent at managing the friction and the political baggage or don't entertain it and don't take that money. And it's just because it is solely because, as with all elements of economic life, China has just been seen only and purely as a gold rush. And there hasn't been an acknowledgement of like the incredible nuance and the incredible detail of engaging with China. It's not responsibility free you have an obligation to members of the chinese diaspora to chinese students and to yourself when you engage with china it can't just be you're taking like gob smackingly large amounts of student money without responsibilities yeah i mean that's a very old school way of thinking about it and it needs to get updated the, the narratives are just so slow to yeah. change and we're in this process of of needed transformation now but it's happening very slowly yeah and it seems like the the path to to people sort of updating and getting more realistic and uh, nuanced about china is by hitching their grafting their their views onto pretty hard line unnuanced perspectives on china and so it's almost like the pendulum has to swing hard the other way in order to get some sort of right sizing or correction, but it's going to be an overcorrection. Yeah, I don't know. It's troubling because this is like a, this is a legit problem. I'm glad that uh, Charlie Adel, my man, uh, U.S. Studies Center, he's the one who organized this. Shout out. I'm not Chinese, but I'm very Chinese passing, and there's something to be said about like you look. People think you are Chinese, but you're yes. not Chinese. Most people do. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> I get that quite a lot. Or they think I'm American because they hear my accent, which I'm not. Uh, there has been instances, even just with myself, but especially with like quite a few of my friends, where maybe they're not even other students, or we just be your everyday citizens. They'll take action themselves. I'll be walking the street, you know, I'll just have like a racial slur thrown at me, or be like, "Stop stealing our shit." I'm like, "What shit? I'm just eating my chicken nuggets. I don't know what to like do here." Um, and you just kind of have to sit there and take it. And I guess the point you made about like it's just gonna keep escalating. I'm like at the universities, if you could do something before that happens, that'd be really good. This is the problem, like, yeah. So you're, what you're highlighting is like, I mentioned this a few episodes ago too. There is an inevitable rebound, negative rebound or like backlash that's racial that will happen if you let Chinese, mainland Chinese students come here and try to enforce Xi Jinping law, you know, it's particularly on other Chinese students. Um, and it's you're, you, you're, you're experiencing that anecdotally. And what I'm saying is it's going to get worse before it gets better. And the reason is because governments are letting their universities cash in on Chinese money and they're not doing the democratic integrity part of that to counterbalance that money. Yeah, it, it was geopolitics and it has spillover effects into the rest of society in a way that is really harmful and really damaging to lots of people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. 
All right, now it's time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So we have our first question from Liberal John, who's asking, what's your favorite lefty publication? Okay. So I think this might be a reaction to my, uh, like a week ago or something, I, I tweeted out that The Nation is usually my least favorite lefty publication. So this might be like the follow-up question to that. Um, and The Nation is getting, the, it ebbs and flows. Like during the Bush era, it was quite good. Um, early Trump era, it's sucked ass. And then kind of recently, they've had some good pieces. Um, a guy who was at New Republic moved over to The Nation and like that might be changing things. Um, so my favorite lefty publication depends on what what I'm looking for. I'm not a Marxist, okay? <laughs> Dissent magazine is like very anchored philosophically in Marxism. and uh, But I find that they produce basically the best, most uh, systematically consistent analysis. Um, and they're... they're their consciousness about class politics and that emphasis, uh, I find to be like very good and valuable. And so, even though I'm not, I'm not down with the, the sort of underlying ideology, at least not wholeheartedly. There's a lot of goodness there, um, and I appreciate their like ideological consistency. The New Republic is like, it's kind of like Vox for the left. They've they've turned into like heavily doing explainer pieces, but with like a leftist tinge so if that's your if, if you like vox but you feel it's a little too just like neoliberal um, or technocratic then new republic is going to be good um, if you want to just like laugh the baffler is like amazingly good satire sometimes it's a little too biting um, and obviously from the left and then uh, n plus one is a very good publication too I, but i don't know quite how to describe it it's a little bit in, in the overlapping space of the New Republic. It's less political. It's like people who are left, but then they're writing about like society and culture kind of stuff. So yeah, that's... Those should all appear in the show notes, maybe? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a lot of links. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Um, okay, great. So the next two are from Jakob Ismail, who at this point is a friend of the pod friend too. Of the pod. Um, his first question is, given the improving relations between China and Russia since 2014, is it wishful thinking to consider rapprochement with Moscow to avoid a Sino-Russian alliance? Uh, I think that's wishful thinking because Russia interfered in our fucking elections. <laughs> Putin's also uh, like he's the European flaming asshole. Like he is, he is, he's Russian Trump. I mean, well, he's smarter than that actually. Like he, but he's like he's not a friend of democracy. He's not a friend of the U.S. Um, and. I'm not super worried about like a Russia China axis that like they tried that in the sixties and it, it fell apart. Um, they're too big. They're too close to each other. There's a history of mistrust. They're culturally incompatible. The only thing they have in common is like anti-Americanism. Um, and so I'm not super worried about that. And there's such a groundswell in Washington against Russia, particularly among Democrats. I don't see how you undo that just to stick it to China. Okay, great. Um, and the second question is, how would a new democratic administration address the Middle East while paying attention to the current American strategies that um, indicate a rising China is a strategic competitor to the U.S.? Yes, well, I would say don't go after the oil. Um, 
that would be a good start. (laughs) Have have a goal. (laughs) Stick to it. Try to try to be consistent. Um, Don't sell out the allies that you cultivate, particularly if they're democratic. Um, Yeah. So like all those things were tongue in cheek, but also true. And that's part of the problem. Um, The Middle East is not strategically important to the United States. Asia is. Europe is. The Middle East is a place that you want to prevent from being taken over by any one power, frankly. But beyond that, it's just not that important. And like in decades past, you did have a concern with ensuring oil flows. That's becoming less and less important. Like, let's fucking get real. Like, you can't pursue the Green New Deal and go after the oil, you know? (laughs) So like that's the Middle East. Uh... You basically want to keep it from being a hotbed of terrorism if you can. But that means like a lot of development work, peace building. Um, it's those those soft tools of statecraft that America has always had, but that has never treated them with any kind of like strategic significance. And so I think uh, a democratic administration, no matter who it is, is going to come in, going to uh, plus up those soft tools in the Middle East and then ramp down on... Um, a military presence everywhere that they can. The counterterrorism operations are going to be what keeps some U.S. presence there. If it was me, if I was king for a day, I'd I'd get us to fuck out. We can go back in if we need to, but let that be clear as opposed to just constantly being there. Um, Great. So the next question is from Benjamin Zimmer, who is a master of international affairs student at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. Sorry, I forgot to breathe. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, whoa. Yep. Um, And he's saying North Korea has recently ramped up its military testing of multiple rocket launcher systems. Is it a sign of a more militaristic foreign policy strategy in 2020 if North Korea feels diplomacy is not worth it? Yeah. So actually, so this is uh, a nice continuation of what we talked about at the beginning of the show with uh, North Korea's 2020 deadline. Unfortunately, yes. So North Korea, when it does these missile launches right now, it's actively trying to use them to coerce the U.S. into granting sanctions relief. That doesn't mean you don't grant sanctions relief, but it's you are obviously now you have allowed it to happen under circumstances where it becomes a moral hazard. And you could have avoided that by just doing the fucking right thing in the first place. And so now we've we've maneuvered ourselves into this position and um, not for nothing, but like when the assistant secretary in charge of Asia is like not even aware of the deadline, that's like doubly, triply concerning and that you're just sort of like you're tuned out on North Korea. North Korea is going to make you tune back in, man. That's what happened. That's why. That's what's happened in the other six crises we've had since 1953 or 1966 or whatever it was. And so we're North Korea is signaling that it is going to go down this path of more overt coercion, and it's going to gradually escalate if we just keep tuning out until it punches us in the nose, at which point we risk a nuclear war, and then hopefully we're prudent enough to like manage that. But I'm not so sure since we're not even fucking tuned in. Sounds very hopeful. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> Thank you for your answer. Okay. And our last question is from Heather Burnham, who asks, why did you stop doing Pacific Pundit? So uh, Pacific Pundit was my old podcast, my first podcast. And uh, it was distributed by War on the Rocks. Uh, I stopped doing it for two reasons. Clearly, I wanted to keep doing podcasts. Um <laughs> 
One was that it was very labor intensive. So like these episodes that we do here, they require prep, but it's like, I don't know, two or three hours of prep a week. And when I was doing Pacific Pundit, it was like a one man show. So I didn't have a team of people working on working with me on it. And it was probably like 15 hours of prep an episode because I had structured them in that like Malcolm Gladwell way of like each episode is its own thesis statement. And then I have to like find different angles, all reinforcing that same thesis statement. So I'm making like one big 40 minute long argument and I'm using academic research and policy commentary and fucking hip hop lyrics, like no shit. Like, I mean, you clearly know that if you were listening to the show, clearly. Um, and so like triangulating all that and like going back and listening to like, you know, Nas's Illmatic or like whatever, trying to like parse out what's the line, what's the one liner that like really gets us over the finish line on this argument. And like, that takes a lot of fucking time, man. And so um, this is like lower intensity work level, but also like when I was doing Pacific Pundit, I reached a point where I got the uh, Cambridge University Press contract to do my second book. And I had to do it in six months from scratch. So to write a book from scratch in six months, I had to prioritize and Pacific Pundit wasn't paying the bills. So I was like, fuck it. I'm going to, you know, push pause. Um, and so that was why I stopped initially. And then when I, when I got to a place in 2019 where I could finally like lift my head up and start a podcast again, I was like, do I really want to start a podcast that takes 15 hours a week to do? Um, no, no, I don't. And so the result is this. And you got us out That's of it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this is, this is much better. Hopefully you think so. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you like what you hear, buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic. Uh, subscribe to us. Five stars, of course. And, you know, tell a friend. See you next time. Peace.